brace yourself because you're about to dive into another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. And we just want to let you know that whether you're looking for a companion through your paranoid insomnia, entertaining yourself through one of life's mundane activities, or trying to ward off the internal screams of all those sad, smothered souls around the office, THC is here. And you should know that every episode of the Higher Side Chats has an entire second hour for Plus members. Sign up at thehiresidechatsplus.com and you'll get years of Plus show archives, lifetime forum access, a special invite to Greg Carlwood's monthly joint sessions, MP3s of THC music, bonus episodes, tour videos, and 10% off t-shirts, grinders, and whatever else ends up in the Higher Side store. It's $8 a month that you won't miss. So become a Plus member and treat yourself in these troubled times. Always action-packed and commercial-free, which means you'll unfortunately never hear my voice again. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Higher Side Chats. All right, Higher Side Chatters, might I suggest that you keep your seats and tray tables in the upright locked position, because we're going on one hell of a ride today. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood, and when it comes to the high strangeness seeping from this weird world, few corners of the globe are as potent as the American Southwest. The landscape, the seclusion, the lost treasures and artifacts, the esoteric traditions of the indigenous population, natural portal places, and the heavy Masonic influence in the area all mix together to create a perfect storm of intrigue. And the full scope of secrets and mysteries the desert holds might never truly be known, but we are lucky to have with us a true watchdog of the West in Corey Daniel, who not only grew up exploring the area and soaking up stories from cowboys, prospectors, and tribesmen, but he also grew up learning about the occult in a first-hand way that very few of us have. He was here about a year ago talking about all sorts of fascinating things from Masonic pyramid temples and secret healing springs to hidden caves in the Grand Canyon and the esoteric ritual funeral of John McCain. You can follow the current of Corey's constant stream of ongoing content on his website, The Phoenix Enigma, but his work definitely hasn't slowed down, and lately he's turned his talents to de-occulting events like the Midland Odessa, Texas shooting, as well as the deaths of Nipsey Hussle, Jeffrey Epstein, and Isaac Cappy. I know I'm psyched about it. One of my favorite guests from last year, my kind of tour guide, a lover of the land, and a knower of things. Corey, my man, welcome back to the higher side. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. How you been? Oh, I can't complain, man. And I'm really, really psyched about this. I loved that last show. You just know so much about the Phoenix area, the Grand Canyon, and the Southwest in general. And there's no shortage of awesome stories out there in the sand and no shortage of occult, ritual, conspiratorial activity going on today. But one thing we touched on last time was skinwalkers. Obviously, you've got an esoteric knowledge base and some connections with local tribes. Mm -hmm. And in the time since we last spoke, you actually put out an interview with a person who said they were from a tribal lineage and not only knew a lot about this shape-shifting practice, they've actually undergone the process before. 
The whole thing is over two hours. Definitely a fun listen for people, but I figured that would be a good way to jump right in. Yeah. <laughs> Was that the most detail you've ever heard about the Skinwalker tradition or the person you've known who's been closest to it? Yeah. So this past year, I had someone reach out to me and uh, he told me, he said, how would you like to interview a skinwalker? And I said, uh, yeah, <laughs> of course I would. And he says, all right, when would you like to do the interview? And I said, well, hold on. Let's back up a second here, partner. And uh, we got to talking. I did pre-interview. Like you, I get a lot of people reach out to me. There's a lot of BS out there. There's a lot of people who just want to be on the internet. You know, there's a lot of people that just have crazy stories, just want to, you know, punk somebody. So I'm always on the lookout for that. And because I am from Arizona, because I am a professional guide, I spend a lot of time going through the Navajo Res. I have friends down here from the Pimas and the Yavapai Apache tribes. You know, I have a somewhat decent knowledge of tribal people and everything goes on. He claimed to be 25% Navajo and uh, he was living in the L.A. area. And he said that he had been practicing a form of occultism down there in L.A., since he was a kid, he was probably in his mid-20s, I think. He was about 25, somewhere in there. And he said a few years back, his grandfather had come back to him and pulled him back up to the Navajo Res and said, you know, you need to learn our ways. And he went back to the Res. He lived back there, and he was studying. And he learned the Skinwalker way. He joined the Skinwalker Society. He said he was a practicing Skinwalker. He said that he could shapeshift. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. And he mentions all sorts of interesting things using animals for divination when you form that bond mm -hmm. that the fey bloodlines have preserved this magical lineage through generations yeah. that he's seen entities step into the physical world. Yeah. And when it comes to this skinwalker ability, he mentioned that it was a gift from their spirit guides to protect themselves from the white man when they were being put on death marches. And I found that really interesting because it seems to be a pattern that people can be handed down esoteric tools or healing modalities or whatever in times of need or desperation or traumatic events. It seems to be kind of a common catalyst. It almost seems like a spiritual trigger or some kind of a trigger from the other side that when the human condition goes into dire straits, something just gets triggered and, and, and a power source comes through. Mm-hmm. We had done some research and we found out that there are stories of shape-shifting in the Caribbean and that they had acquired those gifts and those powers from the Spanish conquest. You know, the Spanish were pretty rough on people. Yeah. Then you go and you check out the African tribes and they're shape-shifting all over the world. When you get into more of the tribal essence of it, it seems that the story is always the same. These powers were gifted to these people in times of great stress and great trials and tribulations. So that is a common theme. There's got to be something there. There's got to be something to it. What I find most interesting above everything about the whole entire skinwalker deal, whereas you find skinwalker uh, shape-shifting all around the world, in the Americas, it's primarily you find it throughout Arizona and southern Utah. You find it with the Ute tribes, the Hopi recognize it, and the Navajo especially, which is bizarre because the Navajo come from up north. They're actually of the Diné tribe, and they migrated down about 1350 into what's now northern Arizona territory. So they actually speak an Athabascan dialect of language. The Hopi, who they share, you know, the Hopi are stuck right in the middle of the Navajo. The Hopi are from what's now Guatemala. Maybe they've run the DNA. Their language is of a Mayan dialect. 
They are very, very short, like the Mayan people, a little darker. So they come from down there. And then you got the Utes who kind of wandered in and coalesced, uh, some say from the plains and some say pretty uh, towards California to the west. It's a whole different culture. You got three different cultures with three different language bases moving into the same area. And they all kind of adopt this spirituality, this belief system, this resonance with this thing called a skinwalker. And the only thing all those three tribes have in common is the geographical area here. It's all on the Colorado Plateau. The Colorado Plateau is like the northern third of Arizona, the southern three quarters of Utah and extends into Colorado and then New Mexico. And gash right in the middle of that Colorado Plateau is the Grand Canyon. And it's one of the deepest gashes on Earth. It's the deepest place that scientists can get to in the Earth without digging down. It is because when the Pacific Plate rammed in from the west, it shoved the entire plateau up in the air about a mile. Okay, And then the Colorado River cuts down about a mile. So that Vishnu Schist, that's the name of that particular metamorphic rock down there called Basement Rock, that's about two miles. It would be two miles down. Well, between that section of Schist at the bottom, going all the way up to the Kaibab limestone up on top, which is the top layer, which is the remnant of the last ocean that was in here, the western interior sea, you have a deposition of stratified sedimentary rock. And it's sandstone layered with limestone, layered with sandstone, layered with limestone, all the way down. And you have a cross cut of exposed soft dirt, earth mass, that is riddled with cave systems. And I can't help but wonder if these stories of skinwalkers have to do with this geological area, skinwalkers specifically, as opposed to other shape-shifting entities across the world, have to do with the geographical location and geological of the Colorado Plateau. It's still a very stark, sparsely populated chunk of real estate in the Americas. The northern portions of those tributary canyons dumping into the Grand Canyon are some of the least explored territory left in the United States of America. They just discovered in 1984, I believe, a panel, we call a panel of pictographs. There's petroglyphs, the rock carvings where, where natives and prehistoric people would, would carve into rocks. Well, pictographs are where you would paint with pigment. And they're, they're very rare. And they found some of those in 1984 just sitting in the open called Gordon's Panel, Shaman's Wall. And they'd been sitting there. The Spanish missed them. The U.S. Cavalry missed them. The USGS Survey missed them. The Mexicans missed them when this was all Mexico. Hikers missed them. And some cowboy finds it. That's how remote this area is. And if something's hidden, if something's hidden within this bare rock, this dry, desolate land of pretty much spongy ground that sucks up all moisture and doesn't allow for a whole lot of rivers and lakes, especially in the Arizona portion of the Colorado Plateau, it's very hostile territory. It's very cold in the winter. It's very cold here right now. I was out there a couple days ago, and it was like, I think, 17 degrees or something, 27, actually. It was, it was cold. The wind blows. It gets hot in the summer. I can see how something could stay hidden up there. I can see it, you know. Yeah, it is a fascinating place, and I just love all the little stories and sagas you have about it. And to bring in more of the occult side of things, I've heard you talk about how spiritual actions or maybe actions or goings on on the spiritual plane can have physical effects in our reality, the one that we see. And of course, this comes up in the numerological codes of some of the events we're going to talk about today, but also maybe in the geological landscape or, or the effects of on the land. And of course, we're talking about the Colorado Plateau and the Grand Canyon. These are pretty unique geological effects. 
Maybe they are related to something going on in the spiritual plane. Maybe that's why people consider these portal places. Absolutely. You had the American Geographical Society, which was headed by Clarence Dutton. And Clarence Dutton was, uh, he was a polymath, highly, highly intelligent. He's the one that mapped out, he was in charge of mapping out the entire Colorado Plateau. Mm. Let's get backtrack here. The American Geographical Society, it was a spinoff of the Royal Geographical Society. Those men like Edmund Hillary, Piercy Fawcett, Shackleton, right? Those guys that went out and discovered in the late 1800s, these far off lands of Africa, you know, the mountains of the moon, what that was kind of took place over there as well. You had Piercy in South America trying to find the lost city of Z. Well, you had people in America and in this, this American Geographical Society headed by this Clarence Dutton, who was, I believe it was Skull and Bones. He was from Yale. He founded, he was the head of a 33 member panel of the, of, of the American Geographical Society. It was this quasi government agency that went out and explored America and the world. And they were deeply occultic. You know, they were learned men from Ivy League schools. Remember uh, the beginning of the Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where those men come to him and ask him to go search for the Ark of the Covenant? Yes, yes. That was pretty much representing the American Geographical Society. These guys have a knowledge of the occult and occulted knowledge. And they went out west. They found the good land. They found the power spots. They found where the good water was, uh, the farming, all that stuff. It was very much tied in with the occult and occulted knowledge. And when, when we talk about the occult, we're talking about the word hidden, right? Occult means hidden, hidden knowledge. That's what they were doing. That's what they were looking for. Not too soon after all that, in the early 1900s, we get the uh, National Monument Act. We had the Wilderness Act first, then the National Monument came around, and then you had the National Park Service. And the federal government began taking control of places like Yellowstone, which is the first one. The Grand Canyon, right, in 1919. You had Death Valley, which was made a park soon after two men claimed to have found a 25-mile-long tunnel under the Panamint Mountains. They claimed to have found this huge underground cavern that had bodies in it, mummified remains of Paiutes. And the Paiutes, strangely enough, are the only tribe in the area, well, the only tribe in America, I believe, that believe in, in an underworld when you, when you, you die. Hmm. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, you have the government coming in and swooping up all this land. And I don't find that a coincidence. Not at all. Not at all. Especially when you realize that, as you know, very well know, United States of America is an occultic nation. We're founded on occultic principles from the foundation, from the, the Washington Monument, which is the phallic symbol of Osiris, to the Capitol Dome, which is the ever-pregnant belly of Isis, where our legislation is given birth. Right. To the ritual that takes place there every four years, exactly at noon, at 19.5 days into the new year, which is January 20th at noon. We do a ritual there, and that ritual is where of, by, and for the people, we inaugurate a new president to lead us. And it's on the steps of the ever-pregnant belly of Isis, or rather on the balcony, on the hexagon balcony, and it's facing the phallic symbol of Osiris. This is an ancient Egyptian ritual roped into, built into our own nation. And everything about this nation is predicated on ancient Egyptian mysticism. It went from Samaria to Egypt, Egypt to Greece, Greece to Rome, Rome to London, and London to the United States of America. The U.S. is the existing, continuing Western culture that was Egypt. 
and here we are. Yes, man. It is rich and deep for sure. And so many things that people just take for granted, even seeing them every year or every four years, they just don't think too deeply about why it is this way and not that way. And one other thing I wanted to ask you about, kind of a follow-up from last time related to traveling out west and finding those hot spots, yeah. is we, we talked about the guy who discovered monoatomic gold and the legends of healing springs like Castle Hot Springs or ones in the Bradshaw Mountains, and that there's probably some type of natural phenomenon that pulls this highly energized material from the ether or maybe compounds it over millennia, and it ends up in these very real healing waters, and that rich and powerful people have quarantined this away. And in that conversation, you made a comment that you suspect that there could be a real recalibration of land values similar to discovering oil somewhere when they finally discover how to extract ether or energy or monoatomic gold from some of these portal places. And I'd never really heard anyone put it like that. But of course, once this reality is accepted, why wouldn't it be harvested and strip mined like everything else? Yeah, we, we tend to value land and resources based on our current technology, right? There was a famous quote when, when a guy, he was a surveyor for the USGS, he came across, he was in southern Utah, right around Canyonlands area, the maze. I don't know if you've ever been in southern Utah. Most of the land stands vertical. Very little of it is actually, is actually flat. And he made this, uh, he wrote back in his report, he said, this is the most godforsaken, worthless mile, 100 miles of land God ever put on, on the earth. There, there's not a, a farmable square acre in the whole southern half of Utah. Hmm. And of course, they were valuing the land for its farming, right? Well, then they said, we'll give it to the Indians. Put them up here and put them on there. And sure enough, they find coal not – well, now it's a whole new value system, right? And then mining gets better, and they can punch down into the ground 3,000 feet with different sensors, and they find uranium a few years later back in the late 60s, early 70s. So you got a whole new value system. What happens when we discover monoatomic gold or some other known element or even an energy field? What happens when the science of ley lines goes mainstream and people understand that that chunk of real estate right there that the, the castle's on or the White House is on or the biggest bank in New York City is sitting on is actually wealthy and prosperous because of that ley line? What happens when that land gets revalued for that ley line? Or, or what happens when they realize that the energy grids from the Earth's magnetic system are sweeter in certain spots and when they cross over certain geographical anomalies like water pockets? or mineral that they, you know, they produce different effects and they have different effects on the human condition. Maybe there's a spot like that in, let's say, oh, I don't know, Sedona, Arizona, that makes people feel happier. That gives them a little more intuition that lets them slip to the other side a little bit easier and, and communicate with the dead or extraterrestrials. What if they find there's a spot somewhere, you know, in Europe that facilitates a ley line going through something that just happens to be on an ancient birthplace of Apollo? And they build a big, huge machine there to break through their side, and they call it CERN, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just a, a really interesting take on things. I mean, of course, some people at some time knew or know or just to build on these places or quarantine them. But if this information was ever mainstreamed or started to seep out, yeah, you'd find all kinds of people trying to redraw the lines and trying to reestablish what is valuable and what isn't. I just think that's 
Really fascinating. Well, that's why it's occulted knowledge. That's why it's the occult. Yes. That's why they don't teach this in those public indoctrination systems known as public education. I don't think anybody in today's age believes, truly believes, or maybe they do, maybe, maybe the fluoride-induced masses do, that Europeans, the royalty and the barons, thought that, that they didn't know what was West. They knew darn well what was over, over here. There were maps. There were Chinese maps. Ponce de Leon sailed with the Muslim Moors. He came over here. People knew this was over here. Mm-hmm. Knowledge has been around for a long time, ancient maps, ancient systems. And I think there's nothing really new under the sun. As soon as they had the boats to get over here, they got over here and they started reaping the benefits, the material good. You know, the Constitution says life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But those were not the original words. The original words were life, liberty, and the ownership of property because happiness and property are, were synonymous back in the day because happiness comes from wealth, and wealth is only derived from the earth. Lumber, goods, products that you can make from the earth that we need as three-dimensional human beings to live, right? Money is what represents wealth, and currency is the garbage we have in our pockets, mm-hmm. but These people that came across the American West, these people that have been in power, whether it's the royal dynasties over in Europe or the American dynasties, the American royal dynasties, the Clinton dynasties, the Bush dynasties, the Kennedy dynasties, that is the American form of royalty. They know darn well as as well what is in the future and what holds, and that's why they're on the cutting edge of technology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Good points. I mean, the world is a wild place. And let's switch gears and apply your esoteric knowledge to some recent happenings, mainly everything that's spiraling out of the Jeffrey Epstein story and his death. I know you've done some de-occulting of the guards' arrests, of the BBC Prince Andrew interview. That was a weird one. And I even caught a little of your broadcast last night, always hard at work, about Epstein's private banker being suicided just the other day. And It doesn't seem like this story is over or going away anytime soon, does it? It's not. I was on this story when I was investigating Isaac Cappy this past year. Right. We'll get into that later. But Isaac Cappy was on to Jeffrey Epstein early. If you've ever seen, did you ever watch Brackets and Jackets, Epstein edition? I did. I did. There's definitely some stuff in there, but basically it's a spoken word song over some music. It goes on like 12 minutes. I don't know if some of that is your edit or what, but yeah, it's it's interesting. So whenever you can, watch the original one again. Uh, It's about 17 minutes or so. What he's doing is he was on a Periscope. He turned on Periscope and Isaac Cappy was a musician. Right. And that song that you hear in the background, he made that beat. That's his. He looped it. He turned on Periscope. He had his people writing, asking questions about Epstein and about the pedophilia going on in Hollywood and going on in D.C. And he was that whole thing was like free first, man. It was actually really brilliant. And he was working the comment section, singing back the answers to the beat that he had written. It was a brilliant piece of art, and it's it's probably the perfect expression of how art should be utilized in today's world to get a message out. In my opinion, Brackets and Jackets needs to be nominated for the Grammy of the Year (laughs) when you hear the original. But he talks about Epstein. The whole thing's about Epstein. And he says in there, Epstein's the key to the whole mother effing matrix. He's the keystone of the whole mother effing matrix. And once you pull it out, once you pull it out, it all comes down. Pull it out like a Jenga 
and watch it all come down. He sung that over and over again. And he understood early that Jeffrey Epstein was, in fact, the keystone, you know, that stone that sits at the top of, of, of an ark and a castle doorway that allows him to build higher castles. He was the keystone to what's going on in Washington, D.C. with the pedophilia. And the, the pedophilia is the agent for what's behind the scenes, what's behind it, much the same way that money is the agent for the control system known as debt. Bankers don't care about the money. They care about the debt that's incurred through the money to which they control our skilled number of muscular motions per hour in this three-dimensional world. They control our freedom and our time, the most important thing that you have. Just like that, the pedophilia controls the people and the players, the senators, the congressmen, the judges. People forget how damn important the judges are, man. They control Prince Andrew. They control royalty, business leaders. Okay, That's what Epstein's about. Epstein is not about some asshole, some perv, who is just playing with underage children. Okay, That's not what it's about. It was a matrix set up to blackmail or brownstone very important people in very high positions to get the world to dance to a certain beat. Mm -hmm. That's what Epstein is. Cappy realized that early on. And of course, I mean, I knew, I knew he would never see the light of day. We all did. I mean, everyone said, how many, how, how long is it going to be before he's suicide? And I, I came out early. I said, he's never going to see court, never going to see court. And sure enough, he gets suicided, right? With three broken bones in his neck. On the 19th of last month, and it came out about 10 days after it happened, Jeffrey Epstein's longtime banker found dead from hanging, immediately ruled a suicide in his Malibu house, right? And then if you remember, and, and by the way, he he was uh, instrumental in privately funding. He made a bunch of high-risk bad loans to Epstein at his first bank. And then Epstein, when he left that bank, Epstein followed his private, his personal private banker over to the new bank which I guess was City Citicorp. And they didn't care, though. They knew what was going on. But Epstein was offsetting the money he was getting from the bank by bringing in other clients, high-end clients. This guy knew everything. If there's anything more important than Jeffrey Epstein's phone, the videos in his house that have people walking in and out that had every single bedroom and bathroom recorded, if there's anything more important than that, or maybe the DNA under his fingernails that died, that he died, or, or, or maybe the DNA on the bedsheet that he <clears throat> hung himself with, it would be the banker. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that banker, he knew stuff, and he's, he's dead now, right? You know who else died? Was Epstein's plastic surgeon, right? Yeah. He died in a plane crash. They say he was dead. <laughs> they say the body looked like he was dead before the plane crashed. So there's wow. a cover-up going on. There is a huge cover-up going on. Everyone knows it. It's, it's the big elephant in the room. America's looking at this joke of a situation. And I, I think people are scared. It's almost like 9-11. It's so big. And if it were to come crashing down, I think Trump's very well aware. I think Trump, I'm probably in the minority on this. I honestly think, because people ask me all the time about Trump, that's why I'm going to address it before anyone asks. You got two camps when it comes to Trump. You got those that have deified him and love him and he can do no wrong. And you got those that think he's the, the devil. You know, very few people will take a, um, a common sense approach that he's a man who's hired to do a job, uh, who probably has connections um, and interests, business, foreign countries and assets. It's probably all that's probably true to some extent. Did he know Jeffrey Epstein? Absolutely. Was he living in New York for New York? Yeah, absolutely. 
Does he probably have deeper ties with Epstein than we're ever going to know? I would bet everything I own on it. You can't be that powerful in New York and not deal with Epstein at a certain level. And people say, oh, no, you know, Trump's untouchable and he's a great guy. And he's uh, maybe, you know, probably he seems to be all right to me. I like the his stance on, you know, making America great and America first. I'm kind of for America first and personal responsibility and personal freedom. He has his own agendas within agendas, of course. But there was some people who were saying, uh, Google, you can Google the uh, Jeffrey Epstein's banker dies and you're going to get Google plastered everything. Trump, 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 Trump. And this guy here, Thomas Bowers, B-O-W-E-R-S. Other search engines will tell you about the Jeffrey Epstein connection. So this goes to the top. And I think Trump understands that if the true reality and uh, the true facts of the depth that Epstein permeated in our nation's capital, if that ever got out, I think he knows. I think it's deeper than anybody truly wants to know. And I think he is not like a good executive. He's not going to air out that dirty laundry to the world. I think it would affect not only the Americans' trust in our judges and our senators, who we all know are bought off at a certain level, you know, all of them are, to the treaties we've made, to the trade deals that we've made, to the freedom we've given up. I mean, God only knows how deep this goes. Right. You know, we found out last year, the year before last, that Justice Roberts flipped the vote on the Obama Health Care Act, right? Because he had two children that were illegally adopted from Ireland that came through Mexico and he would have lost his justice and he would have been discredited and disbarred for breaking the law. And, you know, so he, he swapped his vote. He's blackmailed. Right, right. And I think Jeffrey Epstein was the key to brownstoning, to that whole control mechanism. And I think you're going to keep seeing these loose ends tied up until it's all tied up and uh, just going to be brushed under the uh, rug. And I think Trump will probably do his best to clean up the best he can while he's in there to what he thinks is the best, you know, of his opinion with his administration. But will anything really get done about it? Will we ever know the extent? I don't think so, man. I don't think Mm -hmm. we'll ever know because I think it goes that deep. They say that little things are kept secret through secrets, but the biggest things are kept hidden through public incredulity. And it's very easy to get the public to just gloss it all over because they don't want to believe this is possible in America. No, they don't want to believe that our CIA is working with maybe the Mossad, maybe foreign governments to brownstone and blackmail our own senators to push legislation a certain way to steer the herd in America a certain direction. People don't want to believe that, so it'll be easier to keep it a secret. Right, right. It's really all blackmail and leverage that makes the world go round. You mentioned uh, kind of how Trump made it through his early career. And of course, if you're in New York City working in the construction game, you know some mobsters too, because they've got a pretty ironclad grip on that. Yeah. And I guess my general take is that if you watch the videos where he's actually at parties with Epstein, you know, he went to the Clinton's wedding. I mean, to me, he's he's probably involved in this stuff to a degree, but he's trying to quarantine it to just his political enemies and get the goodwill of draining the swamp, as he says, because you can do both. You know, that's two birds, one stone. If you can keep the Roy Cohn, Roger Stone element off to the side and just focus the attention in this other area, you're going to get that goodwill. It's going to look like you said you did what you were going to do. And, you know, no one's going to look at the things that you might have done. But Again, we really aren't going to know. We know we're on the outside looking in, but I am hopeful and 
inspired by the fact that the memes really have made an impact. I mean, we even had one congressman grilling an investigator saying, Christmas lights, drywall, and Jeffrey Epstein. Name three things that don't hang themselves. That's what the American people think. And I mean, that is great to see. I never thought I'd see something like that ever. So that was pretty inspiring. But I guess just to speed along here on this Epstein thing, I've heard you say in several places that Epstein's murder was a ritual murder. What makes this a ritual and not just a, hey, this guy knows too much, he's compromised, let's kill him type of murder? I think that there are there are power struggles at the top level. There is a religion that takes place, and I don't know what that religion, I don't have a finger on that yet. I am an, an occultist, and I deal cult things, incidents, uh, Nipsey Hussle, Isaac Cappy, all of that. When you see this taking place, on certain dates at certain times, you can kind of sense that something's going on. And I did. I had de-occulted that night. I'm trying to find out where it was here now. I got my paper. But, you know, the amount of hours and days that when he did get whacked in that cell between the certain hours, the names of the people, how long they'd been there, you see these numbers showing up in these events, whether it's Sandy Hook, the Florida shooting, Odessa. Oh, the big one. I mean, 9-11, obviously. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows the numerology there. They should by now. I hope they do. Uh, But every time I say it, someone out there hasn't heard all the numbers that came together for 9-11. The big one that I found was Vegas. Yeah. 10. The number 10 was through in and throughout the whole Vegas. Everything was on 91 and 10, when 91 is 10. And we saw some of that, a little bit of that, to the best of the ability, in the Epstein, uh, the night that he was killed with those guards. So I did a video on that about a week ago now, I guess. And it was there. It was there. So I think that, it's like I said before, to me, there's no difference between technology and sorcery. It's one in the same. And sorcery or magic with a K is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with one's will, right? That's what magic is. And if you can utilize the natural energies of the moon, of the sun, of the days of the week, of our spatial temporal position, and if providing you're not a flat earther, you know, with the with the knowledge of astrology, the moon phase, all of it, timing, you can make numbers and reality bend more towards the conformity of your will. And that science is known as the occulted science or witchcraft or whatever label you want to put on it, you know, in different parts of the world as as it's been culturalized throughout history. You know, everyone's got their own name for it, but that's what it is. And you see spells. 9-11 was a spell. It was a ritual. It was a sacrifice, right? The sacrifice that happened in Vegas, the Vegas, it was a sacrifice. We can go over those numbers if you want to. I don't know if we did that last time. I can't recall. But I think that, I think Epstein, to come back full circle here, I think he was whacked. We all know he was whacked. And I think that someone did their best with the timing and the days of the week and whatnot in order to make it go as smoothly as possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Witchcraft's like anything else. It's just a tool. And you do your best with what you got, you know, when you're, when you're weaving these energies. Right. And as you say, it is all in the numbers. Epstein was 66 years old. The times Mm -hmm. and dates encode 27 and 72. Mm -hmm. Epstein was the first suicide there in 13 years. 
Yep. And these things don't even have to be what literally happened, but these codes are seeded in the stories that come out through the media and the media controls the perception of yes. the events. Yes. And <laughs> I think a lot of us maybe here, listeners, recognize these codes. We see the same numbers coming up, but I guess I'm still a little fuzzy on why go through that energy to encode it? Does it just make it more likely that you're going to get away with it? Does it ground the ritual in the physical space? I mean, what's the mechanism there that has them putting this energy into the codes? Okay. So I get this question asked almost every interview (laughs) and I've narrowed it down to like three possibilities. The first is you have this elite group of master witches and sorcerers that control the world in small rooms, right? You got them out there and they plan everything down the nth degree. Who's going to commit the shooting? What floor it's going to be on? How many cops going to break in the door? How many people are going to get shot and killed? How many wounded? The name of the guy to come to investigate it, the guy on stage, you know, and the tattoo on his arm that has the same date as the day of the shooting, the third night, you know, yeah, yeah. Talking about the Vegas shooting here. You got that possibility. And to me, you can do that with the smaller things like Odessa. You could have planned out the Odessa shooting like that. But the bigger ones like uh, 9-11 and Sandy Hook and the Vegas shooting, there's no way. Uh, There's too many variables. The other thought is that we are going through the universe and these numbers are just occurring naturally, pre-scripted. They're showing up because that's what these numbers, every number is assigned an energetic field. It has a personality, if you will. And when things happen, they show up. And just like math, the universe, it's somehow congruent and it's a perfect equation in itself. And they just start showing up naturally in the vibrational frequencies of the actions as we move through. And that's a mystery. That's obviously a very obtuse answer there. But, you know, it's, it's a possibility. The other possibility is it's happening on the other side. It's a spiritual war with gods and demons and who knows what entities. And we are experiencing and playing out the shadow of this on this side. And that's why everything makes so much darn sense in this lower dimension. Because it's coming from a higher dimension. And it's going to be more orderly when it gets here. Okay, you can have more information impacted into the hologram, if you will. That's our reality. The only other option, and I tore out lean towards this one as well, it's what you just said, is that they are encoding this into the public grimoire known as Wikipedia, into the news. Because if you're going to execute, let's say, let's use Vegas, we're talking about that, you know, if you're going to execute a Vegas ritual and kill these people, whether 58 people die or 59, whatever, put in 58. If it's 72 hour or 72 minutes of terror, 71, put 72 because 72 is a fixative number, right? 72 years for one degree of procession, 72, you can go through the numerology, but the human condition resonates with 72. So you're going to put that out there. So that's on the 32nd floor. There were 23 guns, 23 and 32 are mirrored. You have the 72 minutes of terror, seven plus two is nine, seven times two is 14, 14 plus nine is the 23, the guns on the 32nd floor. He bought uh, 33 guns in 12 months, right? That was the other article that they put out, 33 guns in 12 months. Well, that sounds a lot like Jesus Christ to me, 33 years old, 12 disciples, right? Hmm. Jesus lived for 30 years at his ministry for three years. He had 12 disciples. Of course, if you're an astrotheologist like myself, you believe that the story of Jesus, the son, the S-O-N, 
is an allegory for the S-U-N. It takes the sun, the S-U-N, 30 days to transfer through a cycle, right, to, to pass through one sign. It takes it three days to clear the previous sign and get fully immersed into the new sign. So it works for three days, right? The sun, the S-U-N, goes to the southern edge of the sky in the, the northern hemisphere. Here in Phoenix, we're at 28.6 degrees to the south in the wintertime. And on December 21st, the S-U-N is at the lowest spot it's going to be in the sky. And for three days, it doesn't move, or 72 hours. And then it's born again on the 25th of December, right? Mm -hmm. And it rises back up again. Well, Jesus Christ, <laughs> you know you know the story. He died for 72 hours, and he rose again from the grave. And what's the only constellation in the southern sky? Well, it's the southern cross, of course. Mm -hmm. Jesus was crucified on the cross. So you have this symbolism, this numerology, all of that, all that story. I just told you that story of the sun and the sun because that was encoded into the Vegas shooting. So when you read the headline, 33 guns purchased in 12 months, that gets into the subconscious of everybody who is reading that paper or watching that headline on TV. And it taps into their knowledge of Christ and the Christ energies, and it imparts that. And when you put that article out there or that news release out there, and you have 352 million people in America watching the news, assimilating that information, you just brought that many more resonating, vibrating systems into your spell. You just increased your coven the available energy to draw off of and pump into that ritual that you executed by by shooting X amount of people in that courtyard, in front of that pyramid, in front of that obelisk, in front of that sphinx, right, on Route 91. You just brought them into your ritual. And the numbers you put into the news will fix people's subconscious mind and have it resonate with your intent or your will causing change. And that's how the sorcery works. That's the magic right there. And it's done through the media. And the media is participatory in these public rituals, in these public sacrifices, in these public executions on specific days of the year, resonating with times and energies in the cosmos to bring change to our world. That right there, sir, is how this happens. <laughs> Bam. You nailed it, man. Uh, that is definitely a... Nice little peek under the esoteric hood at the mechanisms behind all this. And to bring it back to Isaac Cappy, who you gave us a little bit of cliff notes on, of course, you know, as you said, he was a musician. He was a actor who had some small roles in movies like Thor and Terminator Salvation. He decided to do this social media blitzkrieg regarding pedophilia in Hollywood and he names a lot of people, Epstein, Seth Green, Tom Hanks, James Gunn, Stephen Colbert, Dan Schneider from Nickelodeon, and many more. But the story of his death goes that he, quote, jumped off of a bridge that was actually not far from you in Arizona over the summer. And you happened to drive by the scene only a few hours later. Is that right? I did. I did. And, you know, the fact that this happened and it played out this way, people have called into question. They've called me a CIA agent, you know, all the crap that goes on on the Internet, right, within the social media and the YouTube world of battling channels and personalities on there. But it, yes. it, it really went down this way. I really am 
a professional guide in Arizona. You know, I'm, I'm a pretty open guy. You can find me. I drive from Phoenix, Arizona to the Grand Canyon, up I-17, across 40 to Williams, Arizona, and then I go north up to 64 to the Grand Canyon. Sometimes I come back down that same route, and sometimes I shoot across the southern edge of the Grand Canyon and exit through the Navajo Indian Reservation and come back down through northern Flagstaff. Okay, That morning, the morning of May 13th this year here, I picked up my people at 9 a.m. at a hotel just off I-40 in Flagstaff, Arizona. From my greeting to driving, it took me about 23, 24 minutes to get to the overpass, the Trans-Western Overpass in Belmont, Arizona, which is about 10, 12 miles west of Flagstaff, Arizona. When I crossed under that bridge, keep in mind, at this time on the 13th, nobody knew Isaac Cappy had died until the 14th. Nobody knew except for the police and the family. That's it. Okay. I'm driving westbound on I-40 under the Transwestern overpass. There is not a vehicle parked out there. There is no emergency vehicles. There's no traffic backed up eastbound or westbound. And I noticed this because I'm not the only guide out there. You know, there's a lot of guides on the road in Arizona between the Grand Canyon and Phoenix. Big buses, private tours, all kinds of tours. And we notify each other. It's like, hey, guys, if you're coming up, just know you want to go this way or there's a route. You know, we note the traffic conditions for each other. And there was no zero backed up traffic. I passed on there at 924 ish AM. Okay. The next day I find out that uh, people are calling me saying, is Isaac Cappy. I'm like, God, Isaac Cappy. Who was that Isaac Cappy guy? I remember that last year he had them crazy videos. We had the hair, right? We all remember the hair. And I get on them like, oh, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I find out he died on that bridge. I'm like, no. Because the article said that the highway was cleared by 1030. And I'm like, no, 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 no. We have a guy screaming at the top of his lungs about pedophilia, about Hollywood, about Kevin Spacey and Weinstein and Spielberg and Tom Hanks, right? He was outing all of them. And he dies on a 20-foot overpass, 22-foot overpass in Arizona. Why? Now, I've been through Belmont. Three days ago was my 780th trip to the Grand Canyon. I've been up there 780 times. I've driven that road. Wow. I keep track. And I go through Belmont every time, always once, sometimes twice. Belmont is not a destination. It is on record one of the coldest places in the state of Arizona. The wind comes down off Humphreys Peak there. It's just a truck stop. It's not a great place. There's a military facility there, Camp Navajo. So then I start putting the pieces together. And it says he died, that the roads were opened at 1030. I'm like, he committed suicide. I'm like, why would you commit suicide in Belmont? Why would you jump off a 22-foot bridge when the Grand Canyon is 60 miles north? Not only that, if you jump off a bridge, you're going to do a high bridge, not one that you're going to survive. It didn't make any sense. So I did a video saying, hey, guys, listen, there's something weird here. I know who this guy you know, was. I, you know, Obviously, we all do. I have my channel on YouTube. I'm de-occulting stuff. And I make this video. And someone reaches out to me the next day, Kate, otherwise known as Deep State Kate or Kate Anon. She's known in the uh, community. She was a very good friend of Isaac's. And Kate asked me, she says, do you know who I'm saying? I have no idea who you are. I don't, you know, I wasn't into what Cappy was into. I deal cult. I'm not into the whole pedophile, you know, exposing thing. It's not my, my wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. And she goes, well, there's something bad. I can't get anyone on the phone. I can't, I, I need someone to go up there and maybe investigate. And you're an investigator, right? I said, well, yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm a researcher. And she goes, can you do whatever you can do? And I said, yeah, I will. So I said, I'll be up there in a couple of days again. I'll pass through. 
I stopped. I started asking some questions. I got some people, you know, the clerks in the stores, and I called them and talked. And it just got weirder, and it got weirder, and it got weirder. And I called her back and said, hey, there's something really wrong here, really wrong. And she goes, oh, my gosh. And I said, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my word. I'll see this through. This is in my backyard. I'm seeing occultic signatures all over this thing. This, in my opinion, from the outset, had too many occultic signatures or vibrational fixatives that somebody wrote this out. This was scripted. Okay, and I'll give you an example here. Isaac Cappy died May 13th. That is the 133rd day of the year. Right there. You have 13 and 33 in that number. 13 degrees in the York Rite of Freemasonry, 33 in the Scottish Rite of Freemasonry. We saw the same thing on the Nipsey Hustle license plate, right? The Nipsey Hustle license plate was 7RJD as in dog, 742. You drop the RJD out and it goes into 544 in the septenary cipher. That's 13. And that was the license plate of the shooter, right? Eric Holder, the guy who shot Nipsey Hussle. His license plate comes out to 3313. Well, here you got Isaac Cappy, Isaac Cappy dying on the 133rd day of the year. And I'm like, and if, you know, if, when I used to write spells, I used to practice. I know how to de occult. If I'm writing a spell, you know, and like that's a very powerful number to stick in there. Then you realize that Isaac outed Seth Green on July 22nd or 722. There's a 72 in that number at exactly 1.33 p.m. in the afternoon. So not only did Isaac die on the 133rd day, he outed Seth Green 1.33 in the afternoon on, on a 7.22 or July 22nd, right? 72 days prior to Isaac's uh, death was March 3rd, or 33. Well, Isaac died on the 133rd day of the year at 722 in the morning. Somebody scripted this out, in my opinion. Or it's just coincidence? It's just coincidence that they mirrored the time and date of Isaac's death with the time and date of his sin against Hollywood of outing the pedophiles of Seth Green and Steven Spielberg. And 72 days prior to Isaac's death was March 3rd or 3-3, right? And we know about 72. We've just talked about that. You know, the uh, the reconstruction for the bridge, the Transwestern Bridge that he allegedly jumped off of and committed suicide, it began on August 20th of this year, exactly 100 days after Isaac fell from it and died. But on August 20th, there's exactly 133 days left in the year. Damn. <laughs> so they began that reconstruction on that bridge when there were 133 days. And that's a completion that completes the cycle that wraps up the energy. It's hermetic at that point. And this is good. This is good sorcery here, man. Because when you see hermetic witchcraft where everything fits seamlessly, it's like a German machine. It's just the tolerance levels are so minimal and it slides like a well-made firearm, the action on it. It's just perfect. And that's what I'm seeing here. Wow, man. Great breakdown. Great breakdown. Lots to unpack there. And as you said about your own critics, you know, I'm no stranger to false accusations and unwarranted skepticism. And I really don't like to throw out stuff willy-nilly that is unverifiable. And of course, Isaac Cappy threw out so many names and you're tainting people with pedophilia, which is about as bad as it can be. 
And like you, I didn't pay much attention to him at first either, because like you said earlier, there's a lot of people out there that want to get attention online. And there's a lot of supposed whistleblowers making claims against celebrities on social media and YouTube and people claiming to be MKUltra or satanic ritual abuse survivors. And I know that Hollywood and elite circles are cesspools of all sorts of nasty stuff, but I don't like wild claims that can't be verified. Do we even know how Isaac knew the things he supposedly knew? There's photos of him, him and Seth Green. He had a firsthand account of his claim against Seth Green. And that's what we got there. You know, he doesn't have video. He doesn't have audio of any specific act. But when it comes to the stuff, you generally don't. And I'm not making, I'm, I'm, I'm not an apologist for Cappy. Cappy was a bright soul. You know, he was, he was a charismatic figure, obviously. I'm not here to apologize for him. And he did. He did ad- admittedly throw out names. He threw out some big names like Seth Green, James Gunn, Dan Schneider, Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks, Stephen Colbert, Jimmy Kimmel, Barack Obama, Spacey, Kathy Gritton, Oprah Winfrey, Beyonce. You know, it just goes on and on down the list. Will Ferrell. Some of the names here, I got it. It's on the mind map. Will Smith. And while we're talking about this, John Cusack, I know he put John Cusack. Anybody listening to this right now, they can go to the Phoenix Enigma and pinned at the top of my uh, site there in the articles. It's called the Isaac Cappy Mind Map. You can click on that and then click on the, the, the view map. It'll take you to this thing that I built. It took me four and a half months to build this. And it is every bit of evidence every shred of video, every body dash cam footage that I received, every photo from every security camera that I went to the gas station and got personally from the managers after I lined up Cappy's credit card purchases with the time and the date and went in there before it expired off the video. I did a full four and a half months investigation on what happened to Isaac. I I, I didn't just dabble in this. This is a real deal. I interviewed five of the six people that were five of the, uh, I'm sorry, one, two, three, four, four of the six people that were there, the witnesses. I called them personally. I spoke to them. I got their stories and they're a little bit different from what they wrote down. And <laughs> afterwards, a little bit differently from what was actually said, what happened there. Right. But to answer your question, before we go off on any of that stuff here, did Isaac have knowledge? Isaac said, and if you, if you know the story, bear with us. He said that he was very good friends with uh, Seth Green and Claire. Claire's partner, and he was their house in Malibu, and they had mentioned a topic of chicken. And he said, chicken? So when you talk about chicken. And then they went downstairs, and he said he had this bookcase that opened up. It's like a secret room. And by the way, there are companies that will build you a secret room in your house or a bookshelf, and it's not a weird thing anymore. Not hard to believe that this guy had one. And he said he went in there, and there were like these bunk beds with chains on them, and they were – and he said, this is where we keep the children, he says, what the hell are you talking about? And he says, you know, we're into something. We figure you'd want to be in with us and blah, blah. And they went upstairs and he said that Seth and Claire had rooms upstairs that were decorated for children and they didn't have children, nor were they expecting. They had murals on the wall. They had all kinds of kids bed and stuff in there. And he said, they, he basically told him is what we're into and you want in. And he's like, no, no, I don't like this ain't me, man. And he sat on that for months and months and then he couldn't take it anymore. And he came out and he, um, he had been in Hollywood for years working, you know, as we know, he was in a Thor, he was in beer fest. He was in a number of different movies and he knew actors. And you know, like when you go to work and you kind of hear people talk and you know what they do 
and you know what goes on with them, but you don't, you know, but you don't go home with them and you can't prove it. Hollywood's like that. I mean, everyone knew Spacey, right? Everyone knew him. Everyone knew uh, Weinstein, right? And Isaac, you know, he, he took what he knew and he just went public with it. And he didn't have the evidence necessarily, but that's what happened. And I think he was planning. I think he really thought more people were going to just jump on his bandwagon and want to expose this of what he had seen. I don't think he understood the power of the dark side and what it was capable of. I think he greatly underestimated that Cappy was not a warrior. Cappy was a beacon of light and positivity and very charismatic soul. That was his superpower. But a warrior, he didn't have the stamina to fight back when it came to that. He was an actor and he was charismatic and I believe he was taken out. Because hmm. even even if it was suicide, induced suicide or forced suicide is not suicide. I believe, just to cut to, to the chase here, that he was aff afflicted and affected by V2K or voice-to-skull technology. And I'm not just saying that. I believe that for specific reasons, predominantly because I interviewed the woman who was with him both the Wednesday and the Saturday prior to his death. And she was with him when they were both hit with voice-to-skull technology. This is a credible woman with a credible story. And she said it was Phil Collins in the air tonight. It beamed into her head and his when she had gone over to Apple Valley to visit Cappy because the family am was Cappy's group on Telegram. It was his extended family, if you will, about 100 or so people in it. And they were looking out for Cappy. Cappy was degrading bit by bit, day by day. He was having headaches. He was beating his head against the wall. He would been telling people he'd been hearing voices and music for three to four months. He told uh, Geo that. Uh, Geo was one of his programmers who helped him set up a Keybase site. They were utilizing Keybase to transfer technology and files hidden from the government to traffic the information back to the FBI and those who could stop this stuff. He was setting up a network, and it was called Unseal Epstein. Cappy's pro, his social media campaign was called Unseal Epstein, and he was setting up a system in Keybase to do it. Anyway, everybody was looking out for him, and they had sent one of the girls over to check him out on Wednesday and said, hey, you go make sure he's okay. He ain't looking too well. He, he kind of need, needs some help. And she spent the day with him, and she said his head was hurting, and he was pacing erratically. He was talking about these voices in his head. They wouldn't stop. And he came back. She came back Saturday again. He said, oh, can someone just please come? And she said they went out for tacos because he hadn't eaten in a couple days. And that's when they were at a stoplight and the music beamed into her head. And she looked over and Cappy was in her seat and he was sunk down into the seat. He began shaking violently and she was yelling. She says, is this what you hear? And he, he nodded. Yeah. And they started to take off. And when they got to the taco shop, it, it, it subsided. It had gone down. It began to go down as soon as they, they took off. And when they got home, he ran back inside and he ran. He didn't wait for her. Even. He ran back inside. He, he'd been turned into a – he was scared to go out in, the, in those last couple weeks there. People say, oh, I think, I think Isaac was just a psyop. I think it was just a complete psyop. And I'm like, well, you know, I've talked to so many people, so many people that say that they knew him. Like, and they're like, no, Isaac this wasn't a psyop. Like I was there. When he beat his head against the wall, I was there when he heard voices. He was a real person. He was really doing these things. I was working with him to, oh, you know, he believed this. But when you look at Isaac's numbers, Isaac comes out to 33 in numerology. IK comes out to 911, Isaac Cappy, right? Yeah. 
between the day he died, May 13th, and 9-11, there's three months and 30 days, or 33 again. Damn. You see these numbers impregnated into the entire situation. And I don't know if it's all planned. I don't know if it's coming from the other side. But I don't know, man. Three is here. On May 13th, there's 133 days left. You know, there's 232 days left in the year. The guy on the bridge with him, one of the Deck brothers, Deck comes out to 23. John Koch, one of the other uh, witnesses, the only two people on the bridge with him, right? right there are two of two of the three, comes out to 33. There's twos and threes, twos and threes in this entire deal all the way through it. Man. Well, that is a really good breakdown. And you are right. Your Isaac Cappy mind map is so full of details. It's so dense. There's a lot of interesting side threads that there's no way we can throw in here. But wow, man. <laughs> well, this has just been a real whirlwind. And I love that you've applied your talents to these high profile cases, but it can get so heavy and dark. And I do think the real uniqueness of your repertoire is the hidden history and lost secrets of the desert out there, even out in the Grand Canyon. And I know you are a tour guide. How much of this sort of stuff makes it on the tours or are they more for the uh, mainstream? <laughs> it depends on the tour, man. <laughs> yeah, I got to be careful because I do contract with many companies. I'm a freelance independent guide. So I get a phone call in my, you know, people hire me. They're like, all right, Corey, you need to, you need to play it straight this time. Don't be going on about, you know, Hillary Clinton and lower fourth dimensional reptilian hybrids. Okay. I'm like, all right, you know, fine, fine. Yeah, fine, <laughs> fine. But here's what I've learned. Man. That's a good question. When you remember Art Bell? Absolutely. He did that show from 10 PM to 2 AM, at least in my market. Because he said, you can't talk about these things during the day. This a formula only works at nighttime. I found out on tour, talking about this stuff, when the sun goes down or coming back from the Grand Canyon or Bisbee or Tucson or Tombstone or wherever we're, we're at, people will start talking about theology and UFOs and, you know, the fire in the sky movement, which, you know, which happened up in Snowflake. That's when you can talk about this stuff. And people want to talk about it. You know, obviously you don't red pill people hardcore. You know what I mean? You don't go into the fact that oh, I've spoken with the guy that, you know, I've spoken with, with, with Cody Snodgrass. And I know for a fact that the Alfred P. Murrah building was blown up by the CIA. You don't jump out the gate with that because they recoil and uh, they'll shut down. But you can get into some of this stuff with them and let them start telling their own stories. And everyone's got a story. Everyone has seen something. Everyone has heard something and shows like yours and work like mine, we are making a difference because more and more people on tour are like, yeah, you know, I heard that and I was on YouTube the other day and there's a guy who was talking about that. And yeah, yeah, I've heard about that. So we're not spinning our wheels. We're having some traction here. And I'm finding out that uh, I'm taking the pulse here and uh, people will talk about it if you go gently, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, cheers to that. And hey, you're not too far from me here in San Diego. So maybe we can talk about a little privately contracted tour sometime if you're willing and able. Let's do it. Sure. I love it. <laughs> well, very cool. And before we call this in here, definitely remind the people where they can dig deeper into your work, social media stuff, any other projects you got coming up, anything they should know about. Okay. So all my work is shown on the website, thephoenixenigma.com, the Phoenix Enigma. Uh, if you type that into Google, I'm at the top on pretty much all of that stuff. YouTube, The Phoenix Enigma, Facebook, The Phoenix Enigma, Instagram. I'm going to be doing more stuff on that. Pretty much I'm all there. And I do. I'm going to plug it. Got to do it. 
I do have a Patreon because YouTube screws me on, of course, all the ads. I am listener supported. So if you do appreciate the information, that's what pays my check when I'm not touring. And that really helps out in the summer times. So that's it right there. I'm very engaging. You can ask anyone who I work with. If you're a patron, I, I'll call you. I'll pick up the phone. I'll call you if you want to talk. And I'm very uh, accessible. So it's been fun. I've met a lot of good people. So right on. Yeah, a lot of good people out there. But, uh, you know, maybe you're a braver man than I. But <laughs> anyway, this has been really awesome, man. Always a pleasure. You do excellent work. And I'm thankful that we've been able to connect. So take care out there and keep it up. All right, partner. This is how we do it, people. Backstreet is back. Corey Daniel. <laughs> is the sequel better than the original? It's hard to say, but it seems close. I do know that I like a guy who uses partner. Partner is something that should be brought back, but it just can't be me. Nothing sounds less authentic than me using partner as a greeting or term of endearment. So kudos to Corey. I guess you just got to live that life. But Corey is awesome, and he's streaming so often, it's crazy. He's even doing a segment called Cult Watch Weekly, and we didn't even get to touch on that, but it's also always worth a watch. And Corey covers a lot of interesting subjects, but I think where he shines is with the local stuff. Native American magic, lost treasures, that kind of thing. Because not everyone can speak on that. And the internet has no shortage of Epstein commentary or digital stone throwing at the elite. Obviously, that's important too, but Corey has just these topics in his repertoire that you just can't have unless you're about that life. It's pretty unique, it's pretty great, and I definitely want to try and get out there and take a tour with him. It's high on my list, although Arizona is one of those states I try to avoid because of the weed laws. Bordering California, Colorado, and Nevada, where it's never a problem, and I can go into plenty of retail shops in all three states. But Arizona's laws are that anything under two pounds is treated the same, and it's a felony. Four months to two years in jail, and a $150,000 fine. And people say, well, you never really face the harshest penalties. And I say, well, I'm not willing to gamble. I'm not willing to rely on the discretion of a random police officer looking the way I look. It's best just to assume the worst and not go where you're not wanted. I thought the Southwest was about freedom and isolation and keeping the government out of your shit. But that is crazy. There has to be a very special reason for me to want to go there and deal with all that. And a tour from Corey is probably the only thing that I can think of that would qualify. But man, how about that Skinwalker stuff? How about that Cappy research? Mm. I know the Cappy saga is mainly in the Plus show, but I really wanted to get at least the core story out in that first hour. It's always a balancing act, as you know. Of course, I had... A lot to say about the situation as it relates to Tracy Twyman. Kind of cathartic to talk about, actually. I think time has passed, and obviously there are still a lot of questions. I mean, I have the same questions. 
But I knew that was going to come up, and I'm sort of glad that it organically came up in the Plus show, because I don't feel as if I owe anyone anything, but I do still get messages from people asking me to explain myself, or I hope the FBI questions you and takes down your forums, and if I ever see you, I'll be sure to get some answers out of you, and weird semi-threats like that. But I feel more comfortable with the inner circle of PLUS members. It's a more intimate group to talk to, rather than just spilling my guts on the internet for critics to pull apart. Either way, I pretty much said everything I would have to say about that in my statement at the time anyway. And all I would add is that I saw that some people really misinterpreted what that was. Some said things like, Man, Greg Carlwood's tribute to Tracy was so selfish and all about him. Well, that was not a tribute. I don't know Tracy well enough to do any sort of eulogy or tribute. It was just a statement to give people context for why I'm even being talked about in this video that was released and fill in some gaps related to my forum and, completely separately, my friend. Tribute is never a word that I used. But because Tracy said she was talking with Isaac Cappy and told him about this campground she found suspicious, and then he died not far from there, not long after that, obviously one would have to wonder. Even though Corey's impression is that there just is nothing to that thread. But I also wanted to drive home that even the details that I mentioned today are just things that I heard from mutual contacts. I don't know anything firsthand. I don't want to spread rumors. Definitely not. Just a sad situation all around, and I hope only for the best when it comes to both families. Also, I do thank Corey for coming here to break down the deep research that he's done into Isaac Cappy and the esoteric weirdness surrounding the situation of his death. I'm glad we talked about Nipsey Hussle a little bit too, because I know that was another strange situation that seemed like it was a hit to silence him. We mentioned him in passing before, but I don't think we really delivered all the proper context for why he would be a target. And just that the shooter's name was Eric Holder. This is something I brought up before, that so often the names and the phrases and the terms we see in these conspiratorial stories, they're actually matches for much more mundane things that will get much more mainstream search volume. So they become harder to research online, because obviously there's a much more famous Eric Holder out there. And to use just another example that involves him, the scandal with that other Eric Holder selling guns was referred to as Fast and Furious. Well, I'm sure that search term is overwhelmingly not about the scandal. It's just a strange thing I've noticed, and it happens a lot, that a story will be buried under a search term that has nothing to do with the topic. Keep an eye out for that. But anyway, that's the show. If you like what I do around here, become a Plus member and get the second hour of all these first hour interviews that you hear for free. Gotta stay in business somehow, and I don't like sponsors or ads, so we do it this way. 
In today's second hour, we really just got deeper into the Isaac Cappy saga. Lots of names and personalities and details involved. A lot of strange threads and odd synchronicities. But I really appreciated that deep dive. And because this was a local story for Corey, he went about as deep as you can. So there was a lot to talk about there. And Corey mentioned Brackets and Jackets, the 17-minute spoken word song that Isaac put out there. Check it out. It's all over YouTube, and I don't know that it's the best way to deliver a message like this, but in retrospect, look into it. Of course, support Corey if you're into what he does. Check him out on social media. Get involved in that Patreon. You know this Rockefeller Rothschild debt-based system of rule is all about fueling the right fires, and I would definitely fuel Corey's. But that said, heavy show today. Merry Christmas. Big thanks again to Corey. He's the man. I hope you liked it. Tell him if you did, and I'll see you next time. Your move, Capstone Cabal, Nefarious Networks, and Ritual Workers of the American Southwest. Your fucking Sweet dreams to the elite. We're calling